I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week we're chatting to Sarah Moorhead. Her new novel is speculative fiction. It's called The Treatment. It's all about the future of law enforcement with groundbreaking technology and the damage that it could create. We discuss advice that she's had from other authors and, well, some of the most famous songwriters in the world too. Also, why she likes to keep busy and always wants to achieve and how the novel started with the classic what if what about if it is just the way your brain works and and that might be something that we could cure so it's the idea are people mad bad or sad you know criminals are they mad bad or sad and in, in some cases maybe it's just a thing in their brain and maybe there might come a point in the future where we see psychopaths as um, somebody with, you know, for instance, if you have a broken leg, you go to the doctor and you'll get it, met, you know, get operated on, you'll have a cast and it's fixed. What if psychopaths were just like that? Something that we could actually fix in society. And that's really where the treatment came from. There is more from Sarah Moorhead this week in Writer's Routine. Yes, welcome along to Writer's Routine, where we talk through an author's working day. We see how they get stuff done, how they plan their life and their space and everything else around them wanting to get words down on the page. And this week's episode is brought to you by Plotter. I'm very excited that back sponsoring the show is the superb writing software Plotter. If you missed the fantastic offer that they sent our way a little earlier on in the year, well, you can make the most of it now at go.plotter.com routine. Plotter is a writing tool that does what it suggests, much like this podcast really does what it says on the tin, right? It plotter plots. It helps you plan your books the way that you think. It lets you outline faster, organize smarter, and turbocharge your productivity. It is a writing software, and it's uh, brilliantly busy, but also superbly stripped back. When you open the software, you get a digital corkboard. You can easily 
swap between the timeline, you can make notes, the outlines, your details of the characters and places, you can tag and colour code all of them. So you can pick things up and you can swap, you can chop and change however you please. It's like having a notebook, but one that you can easily access and reference so you know where everything is. You can find it simply. You don't have to rifle through hundreds of pages of your moleskin to make this work. It lets you track all of the details of your plot at a scene level. You get right in the reads. Plotter, very simply, helps you spend more time writing and less time worrying about everything else. Now, the best way for you to get involved, for you to see how stripped back and stunning it is and how helpful it can be, is by getting to go.plotter.com slash routine and taking a look around. While you're there, you can get 10% off the software with this show. It's on that link, which you can find in the episode notes of this show. For 10% off Plotter, head to go.plotter.com slash routine. This week, we're chatting to Sarah Moorhead. She's done a lot. She's busy. One of those doers. She has been a teacher, a chaplain. She's started youth groups where she lives. She's got a black belt in kickboxing, of all things. And she's an author. She published Witness X a little while back and returns with a brand new story, speculative fiction. It's called The Treatment. It's all about the groundbreaking Offender Treatment Program, a futuristic technology that promises to revolutionise law enforcement. Only the psychiatrist Grace Gunnarsson notices it's letting people get away with murder. We talk about the classic what if that gave her the idea. It's always a brilliant place to start your stories from. Also, you can hear how other authors still inspired her and why her creativity with books goes further than simply writing them. We chat through her writing desk. Now, that is something we do every week, but my word, is there a story to this one? One which even includes a question. You might guess the answer. How do you get rid of a piano? There are even tips in here from uh, Benny from ABBA. Sarah Moorhead brings a lot to the table, so let's dive into it with her chatting through the brand new novel, The Treatment. It's Sarah Moorhead kicking things off with what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. Right, well, I sit in a bay window. I have a fantastic desk, which I'll tell you about in more detail in a bit. But I sit in a bay window and across the road from me, there are beautiful line of lime trees and the sun comes in in the morning um and it's because i've lived here for so long maybe for the last 25 years uh i've walked the children in their prams i've walked the dog i've walked the kids up to school i've gone to the local shops and church and pubs so frequently my neighbors walk past and just give me a little wave so it's just a really nice happy cozy place to sit so the bay window, so a lot of light coming in through there. Just run us through like what's around you on walls. I mean, is this a family living area? Do you, Have you managed to squeeze in some uh, post-it notes or whiteboards or anything important like that? Now, Dan, I've got to tell you, this was originally my husband's library because there's no television. There's no, there's no sort of... Um, music or television or anything in here but uh, when I married my beloved all his books were in his friend's garage over in Ireland where he's from so as a little treat one day I paid for his friend to come over and bring these hundreds and hundreds of books over in his estate car and I had some shelves put up so this room is full of books but then I found this fabulous desk and I snuck in here and I made it my scriptorium. So the husband does come in and, and go into, you know, go through his book. He's um, an academic. He's into sort of philosophy and 
and uh, you, you know Greek um ancient greek history and, and all these kind of wonderful books so but i have my little desk and so he feels as though i've sort of taken over a little bit but that's marriage isn't it you know we share and share alike but there's loads of interesting things to look at um first of all i have a, what i call my tiny bookshop so i've i've got a, a little tiny tiny um it, um, it's a tiny model of a bookshop and I make all my friends books into sort of imagine the size of your thumbnail. I will photocopy the cover of their book and make a little tiny weenie book uh, and put it into the bookshop and then put that all over social media. It's got a little chair, little table, little tiny biscuits and, uh, you know, teapot and, tea and coffee cup in there. So put that up. I've got, um, a lovely sort of montage of lots of, um, authors, autographs you know when you you're starting out as a writer or you want to be a writer and you meet people and so I've got a lot of autographs I've got a letter from Jilly Cooper and Bill Bryson because I wrote to a lot of uh, authors when I was younger saying what's your best advice um if you want to be an author and Bill Bryson hilariously told me if you want if you want to get any information from an author you tell them how wonderful their book is first so I've got that letter up on my wall I've got um Terry Pratchett's autograph Ian Rankin Joanne Harris Michael Rosen, Sarah Pimbra. Uh, and I've also, my, one, well, my pride and joy is Roald Dahl. I've got a Christmas card from Roald Dahl from when I was eight. My mum sent it to him with a, with a, um, stamped addressed envelope and said, will you si sign this for my daughter? And I, that is my absolute pride and joy. Uh, and then in front of me, I have, um, a, a cork board. And on there, that is Operation Central. That is all the jobs I need to do, the, um, you know, the events coming up, the podcasts coming up. Um, I interview quite a few authors in Waterstones, a Liverpool one, which is a brilliant job to have. You know, uh, you get copies of their books and you get to meet all these fantastic people. So last week I was interviewing Claire McIntosh. Callie Taylor and Fiona Cummings at the same time, which was just out of this world. Um, and that will also have um, kind of the structure of my book, where I'm going, what I need to be focusing on, things I need to remember. So that's double-sided um, and that's right in front of me. And on my desk, my desk's quite sensory, actually. I have rose-scented hand cream because writers need good hand cream. I have a um, a sand timer that sort of makes the sound of rain. That's really good. You know when you're trying to concentrate because I can't listen to music when I work, but sometimes you just need a little bit of white noise, don't you? Um, yeah, something just to, I don't know, it just makes your brain go to a slightly different place. Uh, and I've got a huge pencil sharpener pen pot with lots of colour pens in. And I have a couple of... Um, Tributes to my hometown. So I've got a live a bird sign and a um, placemat saying, I'm from Liverpool, the posh bit, which I put my lovely cup of coffee on. Well, th there's a lot to um, a lot to talk about. Very quickly, the, the mini bookshops you do, I, I've, I, I've had a look through them on socials and like they seem a lot of effort, which is perfectly fine. But you're writing, you're busy, you're doing that. I know you're studying, you're doing all sorts why 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 do you feel that's that's necessary why is it something fun that you carry on doing just because i would get i mean you know we're different people but i would get halfway through making one of those thumb sized uh, nail sized books and i would absolutely give up why persist well 
partly because when uh, it's it's a very creative thing to do, and you you know if you're a creative person, you need something to put your effort into, you need something to put your energy into. But also, it's my way of um, showing my love and respect and admiration of my friends' books, you know, and people I meet. And I think the you know writing a book is, is such an extraordinary thing to do in lots of ways, isn't it? Um, it's such a mysterious thing to do, and it's such a thing to be proud of that I want to sort of rather than I mean I will go into Amazon at times and, and give them five stars and say things, but to put all over my social media, um, here's this book that I read and it was fantastic, and here's a little picture of it. It's just my way of honouring them, really. Also, um, the, the the light that streams in through your bay window. I've been thinking a lot about this recently about. Uh, bright light and how seeing the day helps us it might be quite an abstract question how how could you handle writing in pitch blackness oh well two things to say first of all the light has a beautiful quality because of the leaves it's dappled the light's dappled so um and that's beautiful first thing in the morning um i also i get up very early in the morning so some mornings it's pitch black outside but I have my little fire on. I have my fire going. I have a little tiny storm lamp next to me, and I have some, um, you know, sort of Christmas lights. They're the same colour. They're they're all just they're not different coloured ones. They're just bright white. So I will light the place up, and it becomes really really cosy in the winter. Now you are, it would appear, somewhat of a doer. We've uh, described. We've you know run through the little bookshops you make, but also just to to take us through some of the stuff I was sent through. So studies theology, you've been a teacher, a chaplain, you've made a justice and a peace youth group, you've got a black belt in kickboxing. I um, I like to think I'm of a similar vein. In yeah, I like to keep plates spinning, but it's always amazing to chat to people who go out and do things. Uh, where, where does that... Where does that come, come, kind of drive that need to keep busy and to learn more come from, do you think? Well, I think life's very mysterious. And I think, you know, I'm a person of faith and I'm always interested in um, what you're going to make of your life. At the end of your life, what do you want to feel as though you've achieved? Um, so often I question myself am I doing the right thing? Am I doing enough? Am I doing enough for my local community? Am I doing enough for my family? Um, have I made a contribution to society? But also, I think I have a lot of energy in my brain, um, and that needs to be um, directed somewhere. I sort of, I suspect that I am neurodiverse, and um, so my brain's often like fireworks. There's often like fireworks going off in my brain with loads of energy, and when I direct those things, that can be very calming for me and very interesting and very creative. But um, if I don't kind of gear myself towards something, I can get bored and anxious. So I like, to, yeah, I am a bit of a doer. I think it drives my poor husband mad because I can be a bit too much of a doer sometimes. Yeah, that is true. But it it did um it did get him. All his books shipped over from Ireland, though, so, you know, he can't complain too much. You see, there's always a positive. There's always a positive. There's silver linings. <laughs> How much of a plan is there in that? Is there a list of things that you want to get done? Or, uh, for me, it's just a case of, oh, I'm interested in this now. I shall try that out and see what happens. Um, I think the things that I'm really interested in and passionate about, they will just, uh, they'll be what I throw my energy into, and then things just come up from that. 
So with the Justice and Peace Group, that's such a brilliant thing. You know, we've got a bunch of about 50 kids uh, and we meet a couple of times a month and we spend time thinking about the world and thinking about people in need and thinking about how we can improve things and thinking about the environment and stuff like that will come out in my writing. You know, there are obviously things that are uh, justice in particular. And nowadays, the environments, they're things that are very close to my heart and they'll come out in my writing and in my teaching and also in the youth group. So I suppose your passions come out in your actions. Yeah, yeah I think I think that's right. You, I know that you've run us through stuff that might be on your desk, but what is the desk? Oh, my... Right, so now, I'm a bit greedy because I have two desks. I have a desk behind me, which originally was a piano. And I don't know if you know, but trying to get rid of a piano, it's, it's you can't do it for love and the money. <laughs> so, so, so I was have, actually having a conversation with someone the other day about why pianos are so expensive. Because it seems that no one buys a piano ever. I just, I feel like I'm surrounded by people trying to flog their piano and no one wants it. Exactly, right? So I said to myself, right, I had a look at this and I said, you know, it's going to cost me a fortune to get rid of it because they're super heavy. So what I did was I, I sort of dismantled it. I dismantled it. And what I've done is I took away the keyboard. Um, I took I took away all the kind of black and white keys. I uh, took the front and the bottom off and I put bookshelves in there. I used the uh, board to make a writing part. So where the keyboard should be, there is now you can sit and write. Uh, you can put your books on and your pens. And then by removing the front, you can see all the beautiful strings and the lovely um, – uh, you know, the golden, it's called a piano harp, the sort of heavy metal thing at the back of it. So um, I've put all books on it, books on the top, and, and then I put two lights behind it, which light up the golden harp and the strings. So I've turned a musical instrument into a a bookshelf come writing desk. But my pride and joy is the desk I'm sitting at right now, which hilariously, um, it sat in our staff room at school for about 30 years and before that it was a stage prop for about 20 years but before that it was actually in um guernsey so i work for a sister of mercy school um a convent school and the nuns there shipped up a load of uh, furniture when we started our school in the sort of 60s but believe it or not before that dan it had been in the convent in Guernsey, which had been taken over in the war, apparently, by the German soldiers. So who knows who has sat at this amazing desk? It could be nuns, it could be German soldiers, and it's had a you know it's had a um, a, a brilliant history. So I asked the uh, caretaker when he was throwing it out. I said, "Can I have that desk? Because you know it, it's a lovely oak one with you know a lifting you know uh, the lid that lifts up and there's space inside and there's ancient ink." ink stains inside it's got uh, three little drawers on the left on the right it's got a cupboard and if you open that it's got like a tiny little drawer inside so I brought it home and it was a bit bashed up and I left it on the patio under under plastic for about a year while I was doing other things and then finally I um you know reupholstered it and replaced the leather on it and painted it up and now it sits in the bay window and it is my ever faithful beautiful desk Every day can be a writing day. Not every day is a writing day. But if I'm at school, so if I'm teaching, I'll get up about five o'clock in the morning uh, and I'll make a big fat pot of coffee. And then I'll be at my desk about sort of ten past quarter past and I'll write for an hour and a half. 
Then I'll walk the dog and then I'll get ready for work and go to school. When we come home from school, I spend a bit of time with um, my big boys in university now, but I spend a bit of time with my uh, youngest son. We'll have a Nutella sandwich and a, you know, a cup of tea or something. And then he'll go off to play his games or do his homework. And then I'll go back and, um, you know, do a bit of writing, uh, a bit of editing or a bit of research. Uh, on other days, if I'm not at work, it, it's a case of um, put the washing on, do some writing, do the dishes, do some writing. You know, the way it is, like Agatha Christie said, when you're doing your dishes, it's a great time for noodling. It's a great time for, you know, thinking about what you're writing, because as you well know, uh, writing's not just about putting pen to paper. Writing's about thinking and researching and pondering. Uh, so we do a, do a lot of that, really. Or as Stuart Turton calls it, noodling. So I used to teach Stuart, believe it or not. Um, you know, he wrote The um, Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. So I taught him when he was in sixth form. And we often talk about writing. Taught him everything he knows, I would imagine. Well, what's really wonderful was that um, fi- we met up finally because we had this ridiculous situation on Twitter where a random person had written... Um, tell me your memories of a small town nightclub. So I live in Liverpool, but about six miles outside Liverpool is a place called Witness. Um, and we used to work, my first job was in Witness. And we used to go to this little nightclub called Top of the Town or Toppers. So I'd written, I'd been following Stu, not realising who he was, and he'd been following me. And um, so I wrote about Top of the Town and Stu saw it and he said, Oh my word, are you Miss Moorhead who used to teach me in witness? And I went, Yes, I Miss Moorhead. Oh, I said, Oh my God, are you Stuart Turton? So we got together, you know, during the, um, the little break we had between lockdowns and the pandemic. So he came up to see me and he brought me a copy of his book and he just said, I just always wanted to find you and say thank you because the things that you taught me, you know, he said, I, I, I can't say I know the answers, but you just always, got me asking questions and thinking about things and all those things that you taught me have gone into this book. And I just always wanted to say thank you. And it was just like my Oscars moment. It was just like that moment where you feel I did something. I was working, I was teaching and the things I taught somebody meant something and went into creating something amazing. So I think that's probably one of the highlights of my life. That's incredible, isn't it? The way that these things wind together. Um, let's see, you mentioned noodling and taking breaks to do the dishwasher, to wash the dishes, whatever it is. How prescribed is that? Or uh, are you are you thinking, oh, I'm struggling with this bit. Let me take a little break. Or is it just uh, like a bit of a bit of boredom sits in and you think, oh, this might be something to do now? Yes, there's a, there's a bit of boredom, but as I say, it, the way my brain works, um, I can lose concentration sometimes I, I, and and I need a break. I just need to go and do something else. So I, I'm not very disciplined in that sense. I would, you know, wouldn't necessarily, I mean, I, I obviously getting up at five in the morning is disciplined and working till sort of, you know, quarter, quarter to eight is quite disciplined. But um, while my day's off, I feel as though I can, you know, go from one thing to another and it's not very prescribed. So, no, I can't say I'm disciplined in that respect, Dan, no. On a good day, how much are you are you hoping to get done? What makes a good day for you work-wise? Do you ever feel as though your concepts when you're writing are sort of, they're at the very end of your fingertips, you haven't quite got hold of them, you're trying to sort of catch a concept, you're trying to pin down 
and experience in writing. So for me, success would be that I have pinned down something that I wanted to say. I've got the character or I've got um, their motivations or or I've, I've described something exactly that's evocative. So those things would be success for me. I wouldn't be a word counter necessarily. Uh, I wouldn't count the words. It's just kind of getting up to the next plateau. That's how I feel like I'm getting up to the next plateau so I can stand on that plateau. I've done this and now I know where I'm going next. So that's success for me. Well, you've so you've got the treatment out and and you wrote Witness X before that under a slightly different name. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um. So so now uh, with hopefully the success of the treatment, you might get to write and publish loads more books. Do you feel like should that day come? you might have to uh, be a bit more thorough and a bit more disciplined with a word count simply because you're into one book a year, two books a year, whatever it might be? Well, that's exactly what's happened, Dan, because I've just started on my third book now. Um, and the, the sort of the date it's meant to come out is next August. So imagine I've got two children, um, you know, I'm teaching in secondary school. I've got a youth group. So I have to now say, right, Sarah, now's the time to to buckle down and get get really serious about these things. So, yes, I am going to have to be um, a lot more productive. Have you given any thought to how to make that happen? Well, yeah, I mean, at the moment, see, I'm lucky again because I'm off on summer holidays now. So I've got a good month where I can, you know, I mean, I've already written the structure. I've got my characters. I've got my structure. Um, I am a bit of a plotter nowadays. I wasn't. I learned the hard way. Um, so I know where I'm going and now I'm, it's a case of you just got to, you know, take the Nike approach, just do it. That's why I would say, get, get on, sit down and get the words down now. Uh, an author once said to me, the only way you can write, I think he said, arse in chair, fingers in keyboards. And I think that is, <laughs> that's a mantra that we all need to to remember sometimes. Well, I think I think it was Benny from ABBA always said, you know, he sits at his keyboard between 9am and 4pm because if he's not sitting there, then the music doesn't get written. So I think there is there's something in that, isn't there? I think there must be. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, on days when you are slightly struggling... And no amount of uh, dishes need to be washed or clothes need to be put away, whatever it is. Uh, what do you do that slightly helps that struggle? Oh, good question. Um, I walk the dog. I've got a beautiful black lab called Seamus and we go out and we oh, just walk the dog. And that fresh air really does your brain good. Breathing, getting a bit of oxygen or also do a bit of exercise. Um, and sometimes I just, when I'm desperate, I say my prayers down. I say, come on. Give me some inspiration and that can really help as well. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. 
And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We're back with more from Sarah in just a second. Thank you very much to Plotter for sponsoring this show. If you'd like to make the most of that deal, get to go.plotter.com slash routine. And you can support the show yourself over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine there. For just a few dollars a month, you are really helping us out. You are helping us to bring you the best authors in the world from all forms of genre as frequently as we can. Doesn't require a lot to pledge and become a backer just by supporting us. A few dollars goes an extraordinarily long way. It helps me create the time that I need to bring you this podcast every week. For that, you get merch, there is bonus content, there is even a way for your book to sponsor this show. And you can get involved for as long as you like as well. To become a backer for a month, Please do have a look at it. As I say, a little goes a long way over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back to it then with Sarah Moorhead. Busy, 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 busy is Sarah. One of those doers who always has something on the go. That project now is publishing The Treatment. It's all about a groundbreaking, futuristic way of changing law enforcement and how it could help people get away with murder. We discuss how much she knew about the story before she sat down to write it. Also, how much she paid attention to the little tricks that crime and thriller authors usually use. And while talking of genre, we get back into it discussing how she knew where this book might sit on the shelves. Booksellers like to feel as though they know where your book would go in their shop. So um, I did have a bit of a transgenre... Oh, I can't even say it a trans-genre identity crisis because I'm like, am I a crime writer? Am I a sci-fi writer? Am I a speculative fiction writer? So in the end, I decided I wanted to write the book I wanted to write and I wanted to focus on the crime because I think crime writing is um, its exciting, it's popular, it's so readable, it's really gripping, but at the same time, add this um, dimension of... Um, a speculative fiction. So, you know, what if we could see into people's memories to solve a crime? Or what if we could solve the problem of psychopathy? Because, you know, um, psychopathy is something that's just always interested me. And I grew up in a quite a, a religious household, but it was also a very, very scientific household. So for me, the two things are happy bedfellows. Um, and, and I like the interaction between the two. I love the idea of the morality of technology. And as we move forward into the future and on all sorts of technologies developing and coming about, then what about the morality of those things and how we use them? It throws up a lot of philosophical and ethical questions. So really, I wanted to um, write about those things, but under a crime, uh, under the crime umbrella. So I see myself now as a speculative crime thriller writer. So you've got 
that floating around your brain, these ideas about the future and ethics and morality, how did you distill that into a readable plot? What was the the kind of first moment that the idea for what became the actual story, how did that pop into your head? Well, Witness X, um, my first book, um, I get very frustrated about people lying because I'm so curious and I'm so nosy really as well, Dan. I want to know what the real truth about the matter is. And when you watch uh, court cases or you listen to crime stories um, and people, they lie so much and it's very hard to get to the truth of the matter. So I just said to myself, hey, what if somebody designed a machine where you could actually look into the brains of witnesses and see what they saw? Because, um, you know, when memory is a funny thing, we don't always remember things exactly the way they were. And we bring our bias towards memories and we, you know, we imagine things happened and they didn't really. So even when you're trying to tell the truth, it's very difficult to get to the actual truth. So witnesses have got this problem in, in criminal cases anyway. And then on top of that, you've got um, criminals who will lie, obviously, to to cover their tracks and to, and to get away with things. So that's where that came from. And then uh, with the treatment, um, I was just watching a documentary not long ago about Levi Belfield, who... Um, it's just a really, really horrible, horrible criminal and has absolutely no empathy or, you know, for, for the people that he hurt. And again, it was just, you know, what if, what if we could cure psychopathy? Because it seems to me that, I mean, obviously psychopathy is a spectrum. And there's a lot of people in society who are psychopaths in a sense, but it serves them well. They're not criminal. They can make very good decisions. They can make decisions under a lot of pressure. Um, so for instance, some people suggest that surgeons, there's, there's a high level of psychopathy in surgeons because they're their life or death situation, you know, and they need a steady hand with that scalpel and that, you know, a little bit of ice in the heart, as Philip Green would call, um, would, would have called it. Uh, sorry, Graham Green would have said a little bit of ice in the heart does you good because you can make a good decision. You can do that operation without, without being overly, uh, influenced by your emotion, overcome by emotion. So there are psychopaths in society who are, um, highly functioning, but think about these small amounts of psychopaths who cause absolute devastation and suffering and cry, you know, a high level of crime that what about if it is just the way your brain works and it, and that might be something that we could cure. So it's the idea of are people mad, bad or sad, you know, criminals, are they mad, bad or sad? And in, in some cases, maybe it's just a thing in their brain and maybe there might come a point in the future where we see psychopaths as um, somebody with, you know, for instance, if you have a broken leg, you go to the doctor and you'll get it, met, you know, get operated on and you'll have a cast and it's fixed. What if psychopaths were just like that, something that we could actually fix in society? And that's really where the treatment came from. So you're talking of the treatment and mad, bad or sad, this big decision that you're making and, and you want to do, distill it into this plot. And you've spoken how you've learned how to be a plotter, perhaps the hard way. What was the process of getting that big question, how we can deal with psychopathy? And uh, how have you moved that to a place where you have plot and characters? What are you playing around with? What questions are you asking yourself before you can type the first sentence? 
Well, the big question is, so why do people commit crime? Are they mad? Are they bad? Or are they sad? And um, being interested in social justice issues, you know, you look at people who are in the prison system and a lot of those people have a lot of needs, um, not only mental health needs, but, you know, um, like, for instance, 20% of the prison population uh, are ex-soldiers who've got post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and there's a lot of mental health problems in prison. There's a lot of people who maybe haven't had um, the best upbringing. And so partly, I think, if we had a society where uh, people were taken care of better, would it, have, would it lead to a lot less crime? And I think, yeah, of course it would. So, um, for instance, um, like Sure Start was a uh, – well. Sure Start was a um, a service for young families um, where they supported mums when they had little babies or little children and they gave them books and they gave them um, health advice and they gave them a place to be and little playgroups. Now, things like that are fantastic for families, but then the government cut the funding for it. And it means that a lot of people um, don't get those needs met. Or, um, you know, as I mentioned before that I worked for a Sisters of Mercy school. And years ago in Liverpool, when the sisters came over from Ireland, they would make sure that they took care of the mothers and the family because they said if the mother goes down in the family, the whole family goes down. So they understood that if you take care of people at root, at the, at the grassroots level, then it leads to a stronger family and stronger families lead to stronger societies. Or if we take care of people when they uh, are showing the beginnings of, um, say, mental health problems, or if we took care of soldiers when they came back from the army and we gave them more support, then you wonder, well, I certainly wonder what sort of society that would lead us to. Um, so I kind of felt like these people are kind of, they slip through the net and they need a lot more love and care, really. And if they did, I think that would lead to less crime. So in my book, uh, we have a four-tier crime uh, justice, a four-tier justice system where the first tier, people, instead of being punished for what they've done, if people commit crime because they haven't got anywhere to live or they're stealing food or they are, they need their sort of physiological needs met, then the government step in and they take care of them and they give them support. On the second level in the crime where my um, psychologist, Grace, works, she's working in the tier two where people are committing crime because of PTSD or emotional or mental health reasons. Uh, so there, she's taking care of them in a psychological way. But as we move up the tier system, we get to tier three, which is really aversion therapy, where people have made bad decisions because they wanted to do bad things. And Grace doesn't really want to get involved with that tier because she finds it you know, morally difficult. She's happy down at tier two where she's helping people. And then finally, up at tier four, we're looking at the incurables, people that they can't help. So possibly people like psychopaths. So we've got those tiers. But then because you're writing a, a crime story, for the reasons that you've mentioned, there needs to be some hook, something goes wrong, and maybe not necessarily who, uh, who done it. But in yours, there is a flaw in the system that could potentially let people get away with murder. So how, how did you go about incorporating the more crimey elements into this rather philosophical idea you've got what did you think through there how did you plot that bits out well i i thought that if this was a slightly futuristic society so i don't like the word futuristic because it, it makes it sound more sci-fi and it's not but this idea that sort of you know 
five minutes into the future, if we had a society where a government would allow this sort of tier system, there's going to be people who are all for it and there's going to be people who are totally against it. So um, if we look at the sort of, you know, people who'd be against it, there might be vigilantes. So if you're getting treated for something that you did, aversion therapy, and then you get let out, in a week after being to this place and you have a version therapy and then you're free on the streets again. Some people might say, well, hold on a minute. This person committed this terrible crime that's affected their victim for how many months or years or the rest of their life. So we're going to go and, you know, kill this person. He, he can't just go to a clinic for one week and then it's all done and dusted and he's out as a happy, normal, free citizen. So a lot of people, um, would I think that's where I started bringing in the crimes like the vigilantes and the way they also did there's other vigilantes who are like if we copy the crimes that these people have done then it'll look as though the system's not working and we can break down the system in that respect we can break down this tier system and make it look as though it's not working how much did you think about the ending before you got there I guess how much of the whole story did you have your mind across because you're answering questions all the time with this type of slightly speculative fiction um had you resolved any of those answers before you got to the finish well do you know it's funny because i have when i start when i start a book i have a little sort of uh, right at the very beginning i have a little image and that image is often mirrored at the very end um so i would know the very very end few sentences in a way but part of the problem for me was that I was questioning myself because the theories of punishment would be, you know, do you want to rehabilitate somebody? Do you want to deter society by making this horrible punishment where people won't do these things? Do you want to punish people, you know, retribution? And so I wasn't sure at the very end of the book which theory of punishment I was going to go for. Was I going to punish these people out of revenge? Was I going to rehabilitate them? Was I going to, you know, I, I didn't know. So even though I have become a plotter, uh, I am probably very much also a discovery writer as I go along. So I think that even though we all look very different, Dan, we all have a skeleton that's roughly the same. So my story would have a skeleton, would have a plan, would have a something to hang the flesh of the story on. But as I go along, I kind of discover more and more about the characters, more about the story, more about what I want to say, more about the research. And so those things would all have to be discovered and put into place and, and let them sort of organically develop, really. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. You, you make the skeleton and you can always change the the eye and the hair colour as we go along. Yeah, for sure. Um, just let's talk about style quickly then crime is written in a certain style how much did you think about the words you were using the length of sentences the length of chapters around your narrative yeah I mean I, I think my chapters are probably slightly too long but then I think because it's speculative fiction I think you need a bit of that I do love a really gripping pacey book you know say Harlan Coburn and he writes short sentences and short paragraphs and it's just breathtaking you know I do like a bit of that so I do use some short sentences and short paragraphs at times um just to keep the tension up and that's the conscious decision that's a that's a thought through decision yeah but at the same time you know um I, I try not to also I don't want to overburden the reader with um 
too much ethics or philosophy. I just dab those very light touch with those sort of things. You know, um, I don't want the read. I want the reader to enjoy the book and have a thrilling fast ride. But these little ideas popping into their brain or the research, just very gentle dabs here and there. Because the way we've talked about the book, it sounds like, oh, my God, this sounds like a textbook for psychology. Well, it's not at all. You know, it's I want it to be um, thrilling and exciting, but also just leave the reader with questions. I think the best type of books for me are books that I can't stop thinking about after I've finished reading them. And that is it for Sarah Moorhead on the podcast. That new book is The Treatment and it is out right now. Now, next week, we are chatting to Claire Daverly about her new love story, Talking at Night. In the meantime, you can support the show by backing us at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. You can get in contact with the show as well at writersroutine.com and make the most of that brilliant offer from Plotter. They are sponsoring the show for a little while. Very happy to have them aboard. Get to go.plotter.com slash routine. Take a look around. If you use that link, you can get 10% off too. And I will see you next week on the podcast. Until then, bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.